Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of land and waters that this podcast is recorded on. It's March 19, 2015, and Ray and Jenny Kellett are enjoying the open road of the Great Northern Highway on their way to Sandstone WA. Their beloved Great Dane Ella is happily sitting in the back seat of their four-wheel drive, and the couple are excitedly discussing their upcoming adventure as they while away the more than 700-kilometre drive. They're going gold digging. Their mate Graham thinks they're a good chance of uncovering a $3 million reef of unmined gold located in mineshafts out west, and the trio is travelling in convoy towards their planned base in the remote outback. A week later, police locate their campsite. It's eerie, like the inhabitants of the space have left in a hurry. There's a frying pan waiting to be washed, half-empty coffee cups sitting on a camp table, and clothes already bone-dry on a makeshift clothesline. Ray and Jenny, however, are nowhere to be found. Their disappearance sparks the biggest and most expensive search in WA history at the time. And as police comb through the endless Australian outback, attention turns to their campmate, Graham. Because three went into the desert on a prospecting trip seven years ago, and only one came back alive. I'm Gemma Bath, and this is True Crime Conversations, a Mamma Mia podcast exploring the world's most notorious crimes by speaking to the people who know the most about them. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Carolyn Overington, one of Australia's most respected journalists. Carolyn's written for The Age, The Sydney Morning Herald, The Australian and The Australian Women's Weekly, earning numerous awards, including the Walkley Award for Excellence in Journalism twice. Recently, Carolyn's been investigating the disappearance of Ray and Jenny Kellett, travelling to Western Australia to interview the people closest to the case. Carolyn, tell me about Ray and Jenny Kellett's love story. Ray and Jenny Kellett met, I guess you could say, in the second part of their life. They had each been married before. They had five children between them. So this was a real second chance at love. They fell immediately and completely in love with each other. They were from WA and they got married and they were really having that great romance that you have when you feel like you've found your soulmate. They really believed that they were soulmates. They were described by some of their friends as being laminated together, which I thought was such a lovely phrase. 
They love to do things together and also to just do nothing together. They bought a little farm out in Beverly in WA and Jenny was really passionate about animals and in particular rescue animals. They had all these plans to bring all these rescue animals like goats and sheep and chickens to the farm. They got a rescue Great Dane together, which they just loved, a dog called Ella. They loved to do outdoorsy things together. So they would go camping, set up a couple of camp chairs, light a fire, have a glass of wine, watch the stars, curl up together in the tent. This was a love story, no question. They had quite outdoorsy careers as well. They were working in the same industry? Not initially, but after a while, they both got jobs at the Cloudbreak Mine. It's a big mine owned by Twiggy Forest in WA. And, you know, people find it funny that Jenny was driving those monster trucks around the mine. Yep. <laughs> yeah, but actually that's a really common thing at a lot of the mines in WA. They're desperate for labour and women have proven themselves really capable behind those massive trucks. So it's not an unusual job at all. It sounds a bit unusual, I think, to people who live on the East Coast, but driving big dump trucks in the mines is a job that a lot of women do in WA and they absolutely love it. They get their little pink uh, <laughs> high vis on and their pink blundstones and off they go. And Ray was working at the Cloudbreak Mine as well in a different capacity. They didn't start out working together, but they eventually ended up working together and they were both fly-in, fly-out workers, which means that you fly into the mine site, you essentially live there, you get a little room, they serve you breakfast, you work very long shifts, and then when your week or your two weeks is over, you go back to your home, in their case, the place in Beverly, and you're able to do your gold fossicking or camping or fishing or whatever it is you like to do, and then you go back to the mine site. How did they meet Graham Milne? Graham Milne also worked at the mine site and Jenny was driving the truck one day and she felt a little twinge and he was one of the safety officers at the mine. So she clambered down from her big truck and she went to see the safety officer and I guess you could say that he was a bit intrigued by her straight away. I would say about Jenny Kellett that she's one of the more beautiful women I've ever seen in my life. I never got the chance to meet her and it's a great regret because in all the photographs that I've seen and in all of the encounters with her children and her family, she comes across as an extremely vivacious, interesting, warm, funny and clearly very beautiful woman. She had a very welcoming air about her, so everybody was her friend. She loved to invite people to the farm and they would host these big lunches and they would feed everybody and involve everybody in everything. You couldn't help but be attracted to her. I mean, somebody did say to me that when Ray met her and he just felt completely like it was like, you know, instant because that's the kind of person that she was. And I think that Graham Milne probably felt the same attraction that many people felt when they met her, just, wow, what an amazing person. She became his friend because she was friends with anyone. He's a very different personality. I haven't had the benefit of meeting him. He didn't want to speak to me, but by all accounts, he's a little bit more solitary, not quite as outgoing, a little bit of a stranger sort of personality. But she befriended him because she befriended everyone. And before long, she introduced him to Ray, her partner, and a friendship formed between the three of them. They were often seen sitting together at the mine site over the breakfast tables, deep in discussion about things. And we know that Graham visited the farm at Beverly as well. So this trio, we've got Ray and Jenny and their new friend Graham. They were interested in an apparently secret stash of gold in the WA gold fields. How did that come about? How did they find out about that? Ray and Jenny 
they didn't have any money problems really. They were both in really good jobs. You get paid a lot to work in the mines. But there is this culture in WA of maybe one day striking it lucky. There's a lot of gold in WA that was the subject of a massive gold rush. And there's always talk that, you know, there's certain places that you can walk along and you can kick a, a rock and you never know it might turn out to be gold. People love to go fossicking. There's a whole culture of it where they pack up their vans and their cars and they head out into the outback and they set up camp and they go out with their gold detectors. It's just a bit of fun, really. I don't think anybody really expects to get super wealthy. It's a bit like gambling, you know, how some people like to go and play the pokies. Graham told Jenny that he knew about a secret stash of gold that had never been discovered by any of the prospectors that had been crawling over WA for more than 100 years. Apparently, it was described as a $3 million patch. It's a thick vein of gold that no one had ever discovered and he knew where it was. And, of course, Ray and Jenny were entranced by this idea. It sounded like so much fun. He said to them, or we think he said to them, that it would involve a bit of abseiling into some old mine shafts. So shafts that are dug, they're all over WA, these abandoned mine shafts. Some of them have a timber collar, not all of them, but some of them. Some of them are just abandoned. You shouldn't go anywhere near them. They're very dangerous. They go off in all kinds of directions, and if you were to fall down one, you'd never get out, and no one would ever find you because it's the middle of nowhere. We think that probably looking for this $3 million patch involved going into those old mine shafts. They came up with the idea that maybe they would all go out there one weekend and chip away at this vein of gold and make their fortune. Have you spoken to other people who know that area? Do they think that this vein of gold exists? Absolutely not. And I've been there myself and this area just outside Sandstone. So Sandstone is a really gorgeous little town, really remote. You have to go to Kalgoorlie, which is six hours from Perth, and from there it's another seven hours by car. There's no airport. It's tiny. It's got a pub, very old-fashioned pub with skimpies, you know, the girls who dress up in lingerie and serve the beers across the mats and they serve old-style pub meals. Wow, old school. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And there's a little caravan park there, tiny little coffee place where you can get a cup of coffee and a banana bread. It's pretty remote but beautiful and lots of trucks because there's a lot of mines in the area, so trucks sort of coming around the outside of the town. There are gold fields out there, old gold fields. You drive outside Sandstone about somewhere 10 or 30 kilometres, somewhere like that, and you come across all these abandoned mine shafts from where people were digging more than 100 years ago and it's been picked over very, very well. There is no gold left outside Sandstone. So when you go prospecting as a weekend activity, you're mainly going for a bit of fun. You're not really expecting to hit the jackpot, as you say. No, that's exactly (laughs) right. I mean, there are huge companies in WA that extract mine from super pits, but these are enormous operations involving explosions to open up mines Mm. to get really deep into the crust of the earth. The idea that you can wander along and find $3 million worth of gold pretty close to the surface is not realistic. What kind of preparations did the Kellets make for their trip? Is this something that they'd done before? Like everyone in WA, I think they'd always done a little bit of fossicking. I mean, fossicking is not an unusual activity in WA. But no, they were not experienced gold prospectors. It wasn't something that they did every weekend the way some people did. We know that they managed to get themselves some abseiling equipment. 
and we know that they learned how to use it. Abseiling into mines is an absolutely disastrous idea, a really crazy idea. Nobody would recommend that you do that, that you abseil into old mine shafts. In fact, there are signs all over WA warning you to be careful. But we do believe that they did teach themselves to abseil on the advice of Graham Milne, who suggested to them that if they did so, they might strike this rich vein of gold. Did they tell anyone that they were going on this gold mission? Well, this is another part of Fosse King that I find fascinating. You don't tell anyone where you're going. <laughs> because then they're going to find the gold. <laughs> right, exactly. So the secrecy is kind of part of the fun. You know, you don't tell anyone sort of exactly where you're digging or exactly where you're Fosse King because that's kind of part of the fun. They did tell their family, of course, that they were going away camping for a couple of days and that they would probably be out of range because it's such a remote area. They didn't say precisely where they would be going. But, yes, people did know that they were going. So they headed off, the three of them, on March 19, 2015. You gave us a little bit of a lay of the land before. Where exactly did they end up setting up their camp? There's a place called Bell Chambers just outside Sandstone and you have to drive on a dirt road to get there and then you sort of turn off into the bush and there's some gorgeous camping spots there. We're talking the most beautiful landscape Australia has to offer. It's not desert in the way you think of the Sahara. It's quite bushy. There's lots of trees, lots of rocks, but there are quite open spaces as well where you can park your cars, you can set up your tents, you can light your fires, you can do all that kind of thing. So they found a little place just off Bell Chambers and there's a lot of abandoned mine shafts in that area. We went out there several times when we were researching their story and investigating the deaths and it's magical absolutely magical, especially at night. It's a carpet of stars twinkling against this sort of blue-black sky. You can't hear anything. In fact, you can hear everything, if that makes sense. You can't hear any traffic at all, but you can hear the crack of a twig and the call of a bird. So because there's so much space, it's not like you would have to camp next to other people. They would have been alone? Oh, yes. I mean, there are other people camping in the area, And we do know that other campers were at least conscious of their presence, but certainly you don't have to see anyone. It's not like a campsite where you all set up your tents next to each other and, and, you know, the kids all play and all of that. No, it's not like that. In fact, while I was up there, I came across a German couple who come to Australia every year to camp and they do so for the solitude, for the quiet. They don't bring any devices with them. They set up in WA and they just enjoy not having to see anyone. It's that place. So nine days after they arrived was the first sign of trouble. What happened? Yeah, so they set off very early in the morning. They each had a trailer on the back of their car and they also had those quad bikes with them because you can get around the rough terrain on those quad bikes much more easily than in a big four-wheel drive. They were all packed up, ready for a couple of days out there in the bush. We know that they set up camp. So we know that they arrived, no question about that, and we know that they set up camp. But about nine days after they left Perth, the dog, Ella, their big, beautiful, loving Great Dane, their rescue dog, wandered into the Sandstone Caravan Park. And that's a fair distance. Well, you mentioned it was like 30 k's or something. It is. And Ella was really thirsty and she seemed quite hungry. And the lovely lady who used to run the caravan park there She got some water and Ella just gulped it down, absolutely gulped it down. So Ella had obviously been wandering 
So the owners of the caravan park, they looked at her tag and they rang the numbers and neither Ray or Jenny answered. Luckily, there was another number on the tag that they were able to access through the council and it was one of the children. And so that's when the children knew something was wrong because as they said to us, no way in the world would they have left Ella out there unattended wandering. The fact that she was wandering loose from the camp and that they had not heard from them meant something was terribly wrong. What about Graham? Was he missing as well? He was not missing. Graham returned to Perth about two or three days after they had left and he had resumed work at the mine site where they'd all met and when, of course, the children raised the alarm, goodness me, Ella has been found and we can't find Ray and Jenny, police spoke to him and he said, well, I don't know where they are. I left the campsite after a couple of days. I came back to Perth because I had a shift that I had to do at the mine site. I don't know where they are. Under what circumstances did he leave? Because two or three days, how long were they planning on staying? It was a bit longer than that, wasn't it? So he says that when they arrived at the campsite, Ray and Jenny didn't tether Ella, didn't tie her up, and she was running loose. Now, that's not the family's recollection of Ella. Their recollection of Ella is that she was extremely docile. You know what Great Danes are like. They're so big and they're so gentle and that she was sort of nestled by their side. She had her own bed under a tarpaulin. And that she wasn't the kind of dog that went, you know, leaping around the goldfields, not at all. But he says that Ella was racing around and that they had to keep chasing her and he didn't go there to chase a dog around. He went there to find gold. So he became quite exasperated with them. And he says that he took off very early one morning after they had arrived. He went prospecting for about 20 hours by himself And he then returned to the campsite in the middle of the night at about 3 a.m. or 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. He didn't see Ray and Jenny and he assumed that they were asleep in their camper or their tent. And rather than wake them, he packed up his quad bike and his car and his gear and headed back to Perth without saying goodbye. Okay, so that's his version of events. What happened next? Police began a search? Yes, so police went into the area after the children raised the alarm and they found the campsite quite quickly and they also found some other campers in the area. There were other people not too far away and they said, oh, we're looking for this couple that were camped over there. The campsite looked like it had been abandoned as opposed to packed up. So there was still some tea in the teacups. The teacups were set out on the camp table and there was still some tea in them and some drops of rain too. There were still washing on the line. The keys were in Ray and Jenny's car. It didn't look like they'd packed up planning to go anywhere. So for the police, I guess they thought, well, hang on, this is a bit odd. Someone's wandered away from this campsite, but they haven't gone far. It's almost like they've wandered off to do something. They asked these other campers, and this is quite a distressing part of the story, I think, for the family because the campers told police, well, actually, there's a really bad smell coming from this particular mine shaft and they pointed it out and the police went over to that mine shaft and there was a big cloud of flies buzzing there but they shone a torch into it they couldn't see anything they then threw one of those luminator sticks into it and it didn't illuminate anything and so they declared it clear they thought that the smell may have been coming from a decaying kangaroo that was nearby there was a kangaroo dead in the area and so they cleared that mine shaft and they continued 
looking for Ray and Jenny. And in their defence, the search was pretty amazing. They had fixed-wing aircraft, they had helicopters, they had hundreds of people on foot. They covered an enormous area. They went around many mine shafts and did a similar thing with the torch and so on. But it wasn't really until about nine days later that a news crew was up there because, of course, if you have two gold fossickers missing in the gold fields, lovely couple like Ray and Jenny, becomes big news. You know, where's this couple? They've gone missing, the couple missing in the outback. I mean, that's such an Australian story. So media started to descend on sandstone onto that poor little pub and they were all looking for a story. And, of course, after a few days, there's no story. They're still just missing. They're missing. Where are they? They're missing. And so one of the news crews said to the police, do you think we could ask you a favour? would you mind mocking up a rescue scene for us? So maybe send someone down into the mine shafts in abseiling equipment so we've got something to show on the news what police are doing. And the police said, yes, yeah, sure, fine. And they picked the mine shaft where the flies had been and the smell had been, the cleared mine shaft, and they sent a search and rescue expert down there. He didn't get very far down there when he started to shout. There was a body at the bottom. And it turned out that the mine shaft was not straight down. There was a bulb at the bottom. And the body that they found, they didn't immediately know that it was Ray, but it took a while to do the forensics because of the level of decomposition after so long. But it had been dragged to the side of the bulb. It looked like it had been dragged, I should say, to the side. His legs were apart, almost like he'd been dragged by the ankles into a part of the mine that you couldn't see from the top. How far from the original campsite was Ray's body found? This was one of those mine shafts that was relatively close, wasn't it? Yeah, it was not more than two kilometres away from the original campsite. And again, it was one of the ones that police had cleared quite early in the search because it's a reasonably prominent mine. It took me no trouble at all to find it. And it sort of sits at the top of a mound, if you will. There's a mound and then it sits at the top of the mound. It's not hidden in the bush. You can get to it by quite visible trails. What could police determine? You mentioned that they thought he might have been dragged, but could they determine anything else by finding Ray's body in that mine? Yes. At first to everybody, I guess it looked like he'd fallen. And the scenario then that the police put together in their minds using sort of experts who consider these things was that, okay, let's say Ella's taken off from the campsite. She's run into the bush. Ray has followed her and he's fallen into the mine shaft. And then Jenny, who's standing at the top of the mine shaft, or maybe doesn't know which mine shaft he's fallen into, is, is frantic and worried, and she's wandering in her distress, and she too falls into a mine shaft, a different one, or dies in the desert somehow. That was the sort of scenario that people were working with. The problem with that is that when the forensics was done on Ray's body, it became immediately apparent that he did not fall into the mine shaft. He was wearing boots that had very thick tread and his own blood was encrusted in the sole of his boots, which suggests to the forensic experts that he stood for a period of time in a pool of his own blood. There was no blood at the top of the mine. There was no blood on the walls of the mine. So he must have stood in a pool of his own blood at the bottom of the mine. He also had blunt force trauma to the top part of his body. So the working scenario then became he has been the victim of a homicide at the bottom of the mine shaft. 
not at the top, not falling, not accidental, a victim of a homicide. That's the official finding at the bottom of that mine shaft. Then the question becomes, where's Jenny? Because her body is not in that mine shaft with him. No, it's not. And it has never been found. She still hasn't been found. She still is out there somewhere. So then the scenario then is, well, what happened to her? Now, police will go over a number of theories in their mind and they might say, for example, in the original one, okay, he's fallen and she's gotten lost. It seems unlikely that she got lost because it wasn't that far from their campsite and also it's not that far from the road and there are other campers in the area so it seems likely that you would come across someone quite quickly. When they scoped the area, when police scoped the area, they came across three cigarette butts. Now, Ray was not a smoker. These cigarette butts were quite close to the entrance of the mine. So they sent them for forensic testing and the result when it came back was surprising to them because two of them belonged to Jenny and one of them belonged to Graham Milne. Now, Graham had told police that he had never been near that mine shaft. He didn't know how Ray ended up in it. He hadn't been in that direction at all. And so when they went back to him and they said, well, we've just found this cigarette butt from you quite near the entrance to this mine shaft, he said, oh, well, it could be that the police carried it there in the tread of their boots when they were searching for Ray or else maybe I was driving around on a quad bike and I flicked it and it got caught on the wind. But it was very close to Jenny's two cigarette butts, so it looked for all the world like they'd both been standing there smoking while Ray was in the mine shaft. That's what it looked like. But, of course, you can't make an official finding about that, and the coroner couldn't determine how those butts ended up there. Obviously, we can assume that Graham was one of the or the last person to see Ray and Jenny because he was camping with them. Did he become a suspect fairly early on in this investigation? Was he heavily scrutinised by police? They don't use the word suspect in a coronial inquest, but he was certainly somebody that they wanted to speak to and they called him before the coroner's inquest. One of the theories that went around was the possibility that he and Jenny had been having an affair and so they had gotten rid of Ray. Now, that idea is ludicrous to anybody who knows Ray and Jenny and how madly in love they were, how laminated together they were, and also the kind of person Jenny was. It's hard to imagine her being attracted to somebody like Graham Milne, who's a very different kind of character from Ray, who is a big, gregarious, generous, friendly, fun guy. It seems that that's unlikely. But even if that were true, let's say people were working on the scenario, okay, let's say Graham and Jenny having an affair and they need to get rid of Ray, where's Jenny? It doesn't make sense. I mean, not only would you, why not just divorce Ray and run off with Graham? Why do you have to kill him? But also, where is she? It's not logical because it's not like they're together. She has never been found. I guess that was what intrigued police. Where is she? When Graham was called to the coronial inquest, he was asked to describe how he made his way back to Perth. And there were some inconsistencies in his testimony, which he says he's been able to explain. So when police asked him, which way did you go? Well, firstly, why did you leave in the middle of the night without saying goodbye to anyone? 
he said that's his common practice and he didn't want to wake them by saying goodbye. Then they asked him, which way did you go? And his account of the way that he went changed. So first he said, oh, I went on on the maid road, the sealed road, because I was worried about my car and I didn't really worry me that it was going to put an extra hour or maybe two hours on my trip. And then they said, well, your car pinged. You know how your car pings with GPS devices and so on these days. Your car pinged on the unmade road. So what are you talking about? And he said, oh, no, well, that's because I was on the unmade road. I was thinking that I would go back. I felt embarrassed. I didn't want to say anything, but then I headed off again. And they said, well, your car's also not on the only CCTV in the area, which is at the service station at Mount Magnet. And he said, oh, that's because I went around the back of the service station in the dirt to cut the corner and that's why I wasn't captured there. So there's a couple of things that made the police think, you know, we wouldn't mind getting some testimony from this guy in front of the coroner. But we have to be very clear, the coroner did not find that he was a person of interest or a suspect, did not say that charges should be laid. She said that Ray had been killed as a result of a homicide, had died as the result of a homicide by a personal person's unknown. You're listening to True Crime Conversations with me, Gemma Barth. I'm speaking with journalist and author Carolyn Overington about the murder of Ray and Jenny Kellett. As you mentioned, we do have to be careful here. Graham has not been charged with anything. He is not currently a suspect in this case, but you have been speaking at length with Ray's brother and he has a theory that he thinks might have been the cause of Ray's death? Well, he doesn't know. Of course he doesn't know because he wasn't there, but he's been out there very many times. And he, like all of us, would like answers to some questions. And among those questions are, why was Graham's cigarette butt quite close to the mine where my brother's body was found? I mean, does it make sense that it was carried there on his boot? It's possible. Does it make sense that it flew on the wind after he flicked it off his quad bite? It's possible. But also then when you say you came home this way and then you changed your mind and you said you came home the other way, of course it makes people think, what really happened out there? What happened? Where is Jenny? What went wrong? It doesn't seem like there was really ever any gold to be found. It's a perplexing situation for the families. And the other thing that's really desperately sad about it is they don't understand how Jenny has not been found because She can't be nowhere. She has to be out there. And she probably can't be very far from the road because it's not the kind of terrain that you could easily move a body around in. And they believe that if they find Jenny, they will find the answer because whoever killed Ray probably killed Jenny. And they think they'll probably find the answer because at the moment there's too many unknowns Jenny being missing is worrying. Like when we first published a story about this, a number of the commenters came on and said, well, Jenny may have wanted to get rid of Ray. She may have wanted to get rid of the marriage. So she might have done this and now she's taken off and changed her identity. I mean, there's plenty of cases where women want to run off and just change their identity and never found again. I mean, I find that unbelievably unlikely. I mean, I've met her children. They are the nicest, kindest such a credit to her and they loved her and she loved them and her one of her daughters was just 19 when she went missing and has had you know wept openly 
at having to try to become a proper adult, make decisions about do I move in with my boyfriend, you know, do I take this job or that job. And mum's not there. They're super close. And also she was in love with Ray. Anyone will tell you that. They were madly in love. The idea that she's knocked him on the head at the bottom of a mine shaft, somehow climbed out, disappeared, left the campsite in that state and her dog and her children doesn't make sense. And her car. Like, how did she get anywhere? How did, yeah, how did she get it? I mean, that's, it's just a ridiculous situation, a ridiculous scenario. So clearly she has also been murdered and they believe that if they find Jenny, they'll get closer. Now, the thing about that is there is a reward for information. It's $250,000, which sounds like a lot of money, but it's not uncommon these days for people to offer a million-dollar reward in a missing person case. And particularly, how good is it for WA to have two people missing in the outback presumed murdered. I mean, that's not the kind of thing you really want when you've got tourists flooding back into the state. There've been enough of those already in the outback and Australia has that kind of, you know, that strange sort of outback murder thing going on anyway. The fact that two people were killed while fossicking in the goldfields is really not a good look for anyone, especially if that killer is still on the loose, which he is, because no one's been charged. So of course he's still on the loose. So why not up the reward to a million dollars? I think part of the reason for that is they are worried. They are worried that people go to the goldfields in WA for a lot less than a million dollars, a whole lot less than a million dollars. They go there hoping to find a nugget of gold worth maybe $20,000 or $50,000 or $5. You know, they just do it for fun. So I think that they're a bit worried that if they offer a million-dollar reward, people will be flocking to WA and doing quite dangerous things like going into mine shafts and seeing if they can find Jenny. It's been seven years since Ray and Jenny went missing and since Ray was found murdered. What pulled you back into reporting about this story this year? It's one of those cases that once you once you come across it, I've got a bit of a soft spot for couples on a second go at love, and I felt like this couple found each other. They found each other. No disrespect to anyone they were married to before, no disrespect to the fathers of their children, but it was clear to me that they had found each other and that they had fallen in love and they were building something pretty special together. They were building a united family and they were building a farm and they were bringing in rescue animals. They did absolutely nothing wrong. I mean, occasionally you find a homicide and it's the result of organised crime or it's the result of drug dealing. This is a couple just wanted to have a bit of fun, who just loved each other, wanted to go out into the outback, have a bit of camping fun. And this monstrous evil has been visited upon them. Callous, desperate behaviour. And I wonder sometimes if Jenny knew that Raya had been killed at the bottom of the mine shaft, the fear in her when she realised what was going on. Her husband's been killed. Did she run? How far did she get? And what happened to her next? It's just absolutely horrific. It's your worst nightmare. And as her children, how do they go on knowing that she's out there somewhere? She's out there somewhere and they can't bring her home. She's waiting for us to solve this thing, to bring her home. And I found that part of it very hard to let go. You've made a documentary about this case. And when you opened that documentary, you were talking about just how many unsolved murder cases there are in the WA desert. 
why is that the case? Because that surprised me. It's not just Jenny and Ray. No, and they do often say that WA is the perfect place to hide a body because there is so much vast open space. I should say that when we first considered doing a documentary about missing people in WA, one of the things that really intrigued me and unsettled me was the number of Aboriginal women and children missing in WA. They're in quite high numbers. And our original intention was to try to concentrate on some of those crimes that have gone unsolved. One thing that the Indigenous community in Australia will say to you is that when white people go missing, it's a massive story, Indigenous women and children go missing all the time and they can't seem to get the attention that those cases deserve. So we made contact with Dorinda Cox, who is a senator in WA, and our intention had been to go over there and investigate some of those. And unfortunately, we got hit by the COVID lockdown. WA was pretty isolated during COVID. And so we were not able to do the work on those stories that we wanted to do. But I'm really hopeful that we will go back and do them. I'm really hopeful that the door has not closed there because that was the original part of what we wanted to do. As it turned out, we concentrated mainly on the disappearance of Ray and Jenny, and it was a story at least as compelling as important. But I am very conscious of the fact that this dialogue goes on at the same time, that why do we invest all our effort in this story when there is another story out there, which is Indigenous women and children. And in fact, Indigenous men too are missing in WA, and there's often not much of an attempt to find them, often not a body often no one held to account. Do you think this case will be solved, the case of Ray and Jenny? Oh, yes, absolutely. It's very, very hard to hide the truth. It's very hard. I mean, the truth is determined to be seen. It's determined to be found. It has its own special magical power. All of the philosophers have explained this much better than I can, but when all else falls away what you have left is the truth that stands there and it absolutely determined to be seen. And we saw that, for example, with the disappearance of Daniel Morecambe and we saw it again with the disappearance of Azaria Chamberlain. We see it all the time. In fact, I read one just a year ago about a girl who was missing for 35 years and then a bulldozer came in and cleared a new part of the land to do a new housing estate and up she came. Absolutely this case can be solved. Of course it can and it will. It definitely will. The question will be whether or not the person responsible is held to account. Thanks to Carolyn for assisting us to tell this story. If you'd like to watch Murder in the Goldfields, her documentary about this case, you'll find a link to it in our show notes. True Crime Conversations is a Mamma Mia podcast hosted by me, Gemma Bath, with audio design by Rhiannon Mooney. The executive producer is Gia Moylan. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know by leaving a rating or review in your favourite podcast app. It helps other true crime fans find our content and helps us keep making the episodes you get to enjoy every week. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with another true crime conversation.